Hi, this is Brian Hyland. Remember me? I'm the guy that did Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weeny Yellow Polka Dot Bikini. And right now you're listening to the Robert Miller podcast, All of That Dream. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Gary Lewis of Gary Lewis and the Playboys, one of the greatest bands of the 1960s. They had more hits than you can shake a stick at. Their first seven songs reached the top 10, one of only two groups to do that. The other was the Lovin' Spoonful. And we're going to play and talk about most of these songs in the Songfest portion of this interview that I do with all my musical guests. And you all know if you've been listening to this podcast that I feature a song of mine in every episode underneath the introduction and at the end and I always try to make the song relevant somehow to my guest. And in this instance, my featured song is I Just Wanna Love You from my new album, Bobby M and the Paisley Parade. Why did I choose this song? Well, this song has got a real 60s vibe, which dovetails perfectly with the 60s vibe of Gary's great songs. So I thought it worked. So, Gary Lewis, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Thanks. It's my pleasure. You know, when I prepare for these podcast interviews, I always try to dig something out of your background that's a little bit off the beaten path. And there was one thing that jumped out at me, okay? okay. I read that your mother wanted to name you Carrie because she was in love with Carrie Grant. And it was a, a clerical error, and they put down Gary instead of Carrie. Is that right? No, my name was actually Carrie for the first two years of my life because my mom did love Carrie Grant. And my dad said, no, that I've had enough of that name. So uh, legally changed it to Gary. So for two years, you were Carrie, and then they changed it to Gary, huh? Yes, and, and nothing against all the carries of the world, but I don't want to be a carry. Hey, I can relate to that. My mother was in love with Rex Harrison, and she told me that she wanted to name me Rex. And I said, what are you talking about? That would be like Rex the Wonder Dog, okay? <laughs> but my father prevailed. <laughs> Wonder Dog, yeah. So anyway, you had such a string of hits. I mean, looking back on it now, what's your impression of that whole era? Well, when I was five years old, my dad bought me a drum set. And, you know, I have no idea why. I never showed any interest in playing the drums or anything. But since they were there, I'd go out and I'd just mess around. I didn't know what I was doing. So this friend of my dad's came over one day and he says, hey, kid, let's go out to the drums. Let me show you a few things. 
And I'm going, wow, this guy can play. Jeez, I love that. So that happened for like seven years before I knew who that friend of my dad's was. And it was Buddy Rich. So I had seven years of lessons free from Buddy Rich. And uh, so I, I, I started on drums in, in 1964. But I, I didn't want to be behind all the cymbals and, and do all the lead singing. And I had too much energy. I wanted to bounce around and see the people. So I started playing guitar, which I also taught myself. So that's that's how my music started right there. I can't even begin to imagine, you know, having lessons on the drums from Buddy Rich. For anybody that doesn't know, Buddy Rich was maybe the number one drummer in the world at that time. Yeah. And also, I should mention that your father was Jerry Lewis. Right. And uh, one of the greatest uh, comedians and artists of the time. So, I mean, only somebody like Jerry Lewis could get Buddy Rich to give you private lessons like that. He would just come over to visit my dad, but when he found out that there were drums in the other room, that's where he wanted to be. So I was always out there with him. He showed me a lot of good stuff. I, I couldn't do most of it, but later on, I remembered it all. And, uh, you know, I, I had a great foundation for playing drums. 100%. You know, you're making me remember, Buddy Rich used to go on like the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And he'd right. be sitting there talking to Johnny, and all of a sudden, Johnny would say something like, hey, buddy, you're going to do a number for us. And he'd get up, he'd get behind the drums, and it would be like he had been warming up for 20 minutes. I mean, he just hit it, and he was amazing. I know. I mean, effortless. You know, he was just effortless to be great. So I heard that another part of your life is you got drafted, and you went over to Vietnam. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> You were in Vietnam for a couple of years, then you were in South Korea, is that right? Right, right. I went to both both places in 1968. So this was after you became a, a rock star, so to speak. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, I mean, we had our seven top tens in a row, and then I got the draft notice. And uh, it's like hitting a brick wall going 100 miles an hour, you know? The first thing I thought to myself was, hey, Elvis did it, I'll do it. And that, and so I went in. I just went in. I didn't try to fight it or, or anything like that. Um, I went in. I did one year at Fort Ord up in Monterey, California, and uh, and then I got the the Vietnam orders, you know, to to go over there. And um, they just put me at Tonsonut Air Base, you know, where everybody comes in because they didn't know what they wanted to do with me. They, they had no idea. So I just stayed there three months, saw no action of any kind, which was great. And then they sent me up to South Korea after that. Yeah, I was thinking maybe they were going to put you into a Bob Hope USO kind of show or something like that. Well, well, they asked me to do that. They asked me to put a band together and go around and do all the USO clubs uh, overseas and everything. And I said... I'd, I'd really rather not because uh, I got to live in a barracks with 50 guys. And, I, and if I'm showed favoritism, it, it could just be disastrous for me, you know. So they put me in special services supply. 
So I handed out ping pong paddles, <laughs> you know, and and that kind of stuff, you know. Um, hey, bring a ping pong table over to the so and so. All right, and and that that's what I did, you know. So it really wasn't. I mean, I I didn't see any kind of action uh, in South Korea, but you could hear it. There was constant gunfire because I was only seven miles from the DMZ up there. And, uh, you know, it, it was a little scary, but but not as scary as Vietnam would have been. Yeah, I'm sure you're right about that. Good for yeah. you that you, you avoided all of that mess. All right, let's go back. When you started with the Playboys, tell us the story about how the band got started. Well, I was, I was going to a theater arts college in, in uh, Pasadena, California, called the Pasadena Playhouse. It's kind of a famous place, or it used to be. And, and I was doing plays. You get your grade by doing plays. And they would the teachers would grade you on that. So here I am doing Greek tragedies and leotards and tights uh, and dancing around the stage and everything. And I'm thinking, what is this? What am I doing? You know, and then boom, Beatles. Beatles came out. I heard the Beatles. And and it was like somebody just turned the switch on. Beep. I want to be a musician. I want to play in a I want a band. I want to do rock and roll. That's me. You and me and 10 million other kids. Is isn't that the truth? Yep. You know? Uh so I got together the first uh set of Playboys classmates in uh in school just got together and we rehearsed at one of the guys' houses and just, you know, get enough of the top 40 repertoire at the time to be able to audition places and get jobs. And that's what we did at Disneyland in, in 64. Uh, we played June, July, and August. Uh, and that's all we did was top 40 of whatever was happening because we had no hits yet. But that's where our producer, Snuffy Garrett of Liberty Records, saw us. He was out at the park with his family. And he comes backstage afterwards, gives me his card and says, I'm head of A&R at Liberty Records. I'd like to talk to you about doing some recording. Now, now isn't that the way everybody wishes it would happen? You know, <laughs> so next, the following week, I went in there. And he says, here's a great song. I think I think you could do it justice. He said, it was written for the Drifters, and they turned it down. And he said, then I offered it to Bobby V, and he didn't like it either. I said, well, what, what's the name of it? He said, this diamond ring. Isn't that amazing? So touring and everything, every time I would run into the Drifters or Bobby V, I'd go, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> now, isn't it true that Leon Russell wrote that song or at least co-wrote that song? No, no. Al Cooper, when he was with Blood, Sweat and Tears, he he wrote that song. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, Leon Russell was our arranger and he and I wrote a few of the hits that we had and a lot of the album tunes. But Leon was our arranger. He He was... He was brilliant. Between Snuff Garrett and Al Cooper and Leon Russell, you had some triumvirate there working oh with you. Oh, my goodness. It, it was just, 
Uh, I was so blessed, you know. Hi, everybody. I'm Robert Miller, your host. As you know by now, I'm a professional musician, in addition to being the host of this podcast. With my band, Project Grand Slam, I've released 12 highly acclaimed albums, including Trippin', which went to number one on Billboard. And we've got millions of video views and streams. My latest album is called Bobby M and the Paisley Parade. It's been called Album of the Year by Indie Shark. I released this album in a novel way via five episodes of this podcast. And I'm pleased to say that those episodes have been downloaded over 50,000 times in more than 130 countries. I invite you to listen to the album. It's available on Spotify and all the other streaming services. And I also invite you to check out all the episodes of this Follow Your Dream podcast. I've had so many amazing, famous musicians and others as guests on the show, all of whom have followed their dream to success. The episodes are fun and entertaining, and we must be doing something right because the podcast is ranked in the top 1% of all podcasts with listeners in 200 countries. How about that? So every episode is like taking a world tour. If you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to the podcast so you get each episode when it airs. And also, please sign up for our weekly emails, which keep you up to date on everything. The links are all in the show notes. I want to thank you for listening and keep on rocking. Let's go to that Songfest portion, because I got a lot of your hits I want to play in here. Okay. So we're playing now that number one, first gold record of yours, This Diamond Ring. Tell me your impressions of that song now, you know, 50 plus years later. Well, it's always going to be my favorite song because it was it was our first record and the only one that went to number one in the country for us. And uh, the Beatles were the main reason I got into rock and roll. And this diamond ring dethroned the Beatles in the number one spot. So I was Oh, I was flying so high. I was so excited. I couldn't breathe at times, you know. And then Snuffy Garrett says, hey, do you know how many artists have only one hit? He says, we got to concentrate very hard on number two and number three. And if we get those, then we could be on our way. So that brought us right back down to earth. 
Well, listen, he's right because, you know, these one hit wonders, they happen to a lot of artists, but that was not your path. Okay. Tell me about Count Me In, which reached number two. Yeah, Count Me In uh, was the follow-up to Diamond Ring. And uh, we were in the studio all day. Uh, I think we did about four or five songs. And nothing struck Snuffy Garrett and Leon Russell at all. They're all going, ah, I mean, they're good. We can put them on albums. But but that's not a follow-up. And just then, Glenn D. Harden comes into the studio. It's about four in the morning. He says, I just finished this tune. Let me play it for you. And he starts playing Count Me In. And Snuffy goes, that's it. That's it. Everybody set up. Re get your stuff. We were ready to go home. So reset up. Get everything going. And he said, some of the very best records are made when everybody is very tired. He's right about <laughs> that. And we recorded it. And... Uh, Number two. Isn't it an amazing feeling when you've got a song like that or this diamond ring and you just know that it's going to be a hit? Well, I mean, Snuffy also uh, set me straight on all that. He says, nobody knows what's going to be a hit or else everybody would have hits constantly. You know, so he taught us to not think that this song is so good it's going to be a hit all right well he was trying to set expectations i i guess i've told this story once before on the podcast i interviewed felix papillardi years ago and he was oh, yeah. the producer of cream's second album disraeli gears and i remember to this day he told me he held the master of that album in his hand before it went out to the public and he said i just knew that i had a number one album in my hands Okay, it was just one of those feelings. And even though Snuffy probably tried to tamper down your feelings, I'm sure he knew that his records with you were going to be on the top yeah, of the charts. I think you're right, because uh, Snuffy never had any mistakes. I mean, he never had any failures, you know. I mean, all the way from the late 50s, he had Johnny and Dorsey Burnett. Uh, then he had Gene McDaniels. Then he had Bobby V. Then he had me. And after I went into the Army, you know, he started recording with Sinatra and Cher. You know, so I believed in him and his hit-picking abilities. You know, he could tell me all, all he wanted, that, that, well, we don't know if this is going to be a hit. Well, if you didn't know, why were we recording this? <laughs> exactly right. He knew. He knew. Yeah. All right, let's go to the next one. Save your heart for me. I always love this one. This also got to number two.
Tell me about this. Oh, I I really, really love that song. That song was first done in 1960 by Brian Hyland, and it went nowhere. Absolutely nowhere. I don't know why. I mean, you know, but but anyway, Snuffy said Brian Hyland did this few years ago and I and it didn't do anything so I think it would I think you could do this one you know because you're kind of on a little bit of a roll too so we recorded Save You Hard for me and uh, man oh man I just watched it climb the chart bullet bullet every week boom boom number two and uh, I love that song I just love it a fantastic song. You know, I had Brian on the podcast, and he was the guy that did Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weeny Yellow Polka Dot Bikini. And at that time, he told the story about how he was an office boy in the Brill Building, okay? He was like 16 or so, and they brought the song to him, and they said, why don't you give it a try? And the next thing you know, it hits number one. Right. You just never know. Yeah, I I toured so much with Brian Hyland, even up to the present. And he's always been such a great guy and a nice guy and a funny guy. Yeah, I like Brian a lot. And and, and so Save Your Heart for me, you know, he, he always ribbed me about that. He said, oh, uh, where did that one go? Two, number two, you say? Uh, yeah, yeah, number two, that's right. <laughs> you know, sometimes that happens. You know, a version goes out and it doesn't go anywhere. And then somebody else takes it over and it hits the top. You I just know. never know. You don't. Timing in life. All right, let's go to the next one. Everybody loves a clown. That went to number four. Tell me your feelings about that one. Well, Snuffy Garrett said to me, uh, well, we got three hits, three top 10 hits. I think it's time that we should try to write one. So Leon Russell goes out, you know, into the studio and he's messing around with the piano for about a half an hour. We weren't listening, you know, had the mics off and everything. Me and Snuffy were just sitting there. And then he gets up and comes back in the studio and he says, I got a great idea. Listen to this. This kind of, we're going to make this kind of sound like a calliope, you know, and he goes, he says, makes you want to think of clowns, doesn't it? You know, and he keeps playing and the and clown went into my head. And and so I started writing a couple of the words, and uh, it fit into what Leon liked. He did mo he did most of the words. I had like about four lines in it, but yeah. It, and then when when it was complete, I didn't know it, you know how anybody felt about that song yet. I thought to myself, hey, this might be a good song to just be a little novelty number and give to my dad for his birthday in 1965. But then the song got completed and I said, no, we're keeping that. 
we're keeping that one. Uh, I don't even remember what I gave him for his birthday. <laughs> but uh, we kept Everybody Loves a Clown and went to uh, four. You know what I like about all these songs that we've been playing? They're all different, but there's a style. There's a, a not a similarity, but there's a continuity. You knew it was a Gary Lewis and the Playboys song when you heard these things. I totally agree with you. I totally agree. And it was a certain style. And I remember Leon Russell telling me, he says, um, you definitely have a certain style. Don't ever sing out of your style. You know, like don't, don't, don't try to, to do a Rolling Stones tune or something, you know, for release or anything like that. This style is working for you. Don't sing out of your style. And and that was very important, I think. Well, it was a smart thing to say. And by the way, speaking of style, we're now playing She's Just My Style. How's that for a segue, huh? Just my style, all of us, me, Snuffy, and Leon were in the booth at, at the same time. And uh, Snuffy and Leon said to me, what do you think about trying to get a Beach Boy feel on the next tune? A lot of harmonies. You know, beach sound. We'll write some words about beach and this, girl, pretty girls, you know, stuff like that. And I said, well, hey, that's great. That's great. So Leon sat down at the piano again, uh, and he didn't really come up with anything right away. So we went home and everything, and he was thinking about it. And then he came back uh, about two days later in the studio. He said, I, I got a good idea. Piano, you know, the bass part of the piano and the bass guitar together doing an intro like this. Boom, 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 boom. And then the drums come in, and then everybody's in. So that, that worked out great. You took my idea away from me, because when you had that low part, you know, where the, the singer is singing the low part, and then they yeah. you come in with the harmony after that, I said, gee, that's right out of the Beach Boys. And that's what it was supposed to be, huh? Yes, yes, we were going for a Beach Boy type of thing. And... uh so I believe that went to number two also. Unbelievable. What a string that you had. All right. The last one we're going to play. I also love this one, too. I love them all, I have to tell you. Thank you. Sure going to miss her, which I think went to number nine. Yeah. Never did too much to make her stay here. Words of love to her, I never say. I guess I learned a lesson when she walked out to stay but I'm sure gonna miss her sure gonna miss her I'm sure gonna miss her every day
All right. So tell us about that one. That was the laggard, but you, you only hit number nine with that one. Sure Gonna Miss Her uh, was a tune that was submitted into Snuffy Garrett at Liberty. Uh, a guy named Bobby Russell from Nashville, Tennessee, wrote that one. And uh, the the demo was totally different than the way we did it. Uh, it was it was much slower with like a a soulful kind of groove. You know, I can't imagine that song that way, but that's the way it was. And uh, Snuffy said, "Don't worry, Leon will put his own arrangement to it, and we'll come up with something." So we did it pretty straight. You know, I mean, the instrumentation, it it just sounds like four pieces, you know, playing it straight. So we we got done with that version of it. And then Snuffy says, OK, now do let's do the song again with no drum fills. No drum fills. Boy, it was pretty blank that way. Uh, so I did it, just played it straight all the way through. No drum fills, and, and uh, both versions had been released. You know, only one was supposed to release, be released, but both of them in different parts of the country and the world. Both, you know, some had the drum fills, some didn't. And another interesting thing about that song is that uh, Leon Russell said, "I want a trumpet sound." You know, doing the da 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 da, but he said, "I want trombones to do it." We'll record it at seven and a half, and play it back at fifteen, and we'll have the slide. We'll have da da da. Those are trombones. Isn't that interesting? You know, the other interesting thing that you're mentioning about how it started off as a slow one. Yeah. There's a story about how when John Lennon wrote Please Please Me, he had in mind a Roy Orbison type of, uh, you know, dramatic type of slower thing. And George Martin heard it and said, you know, th that's nice, but let's do it this way. And they sped it up and, you know, that became the hit. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Well, that was the wonderful thing about Leon Russell, too, is that, man, I'm, I mean, like in Everybody Loves a Clown, he decided that he wanted to put a bass trumpet lick in there. Bom, 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 bom. Uh, dreaming of your love and not knowing where to start. Bom, 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 bom. You know, and it was mixed in very well, you know, like a lot of people didn't recognize, could, didn't know that was even in there. But... It was in there, you know. So he came up with these kind of ideas, you know. He's a fantastic musician. Did you stay in touch with him afterwards, in the years afterwards? Yeah, yeah. When he was doing uh, his his own uh, his own career got started, and he he did the Carney album. I think that was like seventy one, something something like that. I was I was hanging out at the studio. He had a studio in his house in uh, LA and he did a lot of the recording there. So I, I'd be hanging out, just listening. You know, I, I looked at hanging out with musicians as a great opportunity for me to learn, to just learn, just listen and learn things, pick up this information, you know? And uh, 
So I did, and, and I picked up an awful lot of stuff. I also toured uh, with Joe Cocker when Leon Russell was backing him him up on Mad Dogs in English. So you were on that tour as well? Well, I was just on it. I, 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 I wasn't on stage. Uh, I traveled with him on the buses and, and everything like that. And that, again, was a tremendous learning experience because uh, I, th- I always thought Joe Cocker was a black guy. I really did, you know, before I met him and everything. So, yeah, he was pretty crazy, too. But <laughs> but I loved his stuff, the way Leon arranged all that stuff, the letter, you know. I remember that tour very well. I saw them live. I was living in Boston at the time, and Leon was kind of the conductor on that tour. Right. And, uh, you know, Joe Cocker was at the top of his game. Oh, he was. He was. And Leon would play guitar and keyboards, and I guess that's all he played on that tour. I think. I think you're right. But yeah, he was he was always conducting, you know, from whatever instrument he was on. You know, he was center stage, no question about it. He was great. He was great. Fabulous guy. All right. So tell me, you know, after you had your run, you had your era, which was quite remarkable. And I know that you're still out there playing. Yeah. Um, are you are you doing the various uh, you know '60s tours and the like that come around? Sure. You know, I still do multiple act shows with uh, Jay, Jay and the Americans, The Circle, uh, God, uh, the Grassroots. Uh, oh, Herman's Hermits, Peter Noon. You know, we still we still all play together and. Uh, you know, we're all amazed that we're still here. <laughs> you know, I've I, I've told this story a number of times, but when I had John Lodge from the Moody Blues on the podcast, he told the story about how when he was 19 years old uh, and he was just starting out in the Moody Blues, his friends were asking him, this is great, but what are you going to do when you're 21? <laughs> okay. It's, you know, it was only going to last a couple of years. He says, we had no idea that this stuff was going to last for 50 plus years. And I'm sure you're in the same category, right? I, I am. Because when I got out of the army in 1968, I thought I'd be able to pick it up, just pick it up again. But no, there's these new people, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, The Doors. And boom, in my head, Leon Russell, don't sing out of your style. You know, so the 70s, as a matter of fact, weren't very kind to 60s artists. Uh, So if I wanted to keep playing, I had to play three and four sets a night at clubs. You know, I mean, that's all there was for 60s people at the time. And then in 1984, this agent calls me from Indiana and says, hey, man, 60s are coming back. I said, who the hell is this? (laughs) (laughs) He said, no, really, I I can book you 60 to 100 dates a year. It's really coming back. I said, if you can book them, I'll do them. So since 84, that's what's been happening. Well, listen, this music that we're talking about, yours included, of course, has stood the test of time. And people love it. And I'm sure you've got multi-generations when you play your concerts. Am I right? We do. We do. Because we're still playing to the people we played to in the 60s except they're bringing their kids and they're bringing their kids. So I'd say the average, the ages that we play to are anywhere from 12 to 80. 
you know, and it's wonderful. It's just wonderful. I mean, this is a true blessing. Yep, I totally agree with you. It's been such a pleasure to have you on this podcast, Gary. I want to thank you so much for doing this. Well, it's my pleasure. You know, it's great when you're talking to somebody that knows what they're saying, you know. You know, the 60s was my era when I came of age musically. And yeah. it was always my favorite era. In the 70s, I was into jazz fusion. So I've combined those two in my own back, you know, yeah, personally. Yeah. But the artists that I feature on this podcast, so many of them came out of the 60s. And it's just great music. And it made you feel good. It, it sure did. There were no heavy messages, no, no anything but a good lyric. Exactly right. All right. We've been listening here and speaking with Gary Lewis of Gary Lewis and the Playboys. It's been a wonderful experience to have you. We're going to now listen to that song that started the episode. It's my new song called I Just Want to Love You from that new album of mine, Bobby M and the Paisley Parade. I want to thank you for listening and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com. All the time I want you to know me you to hold me and be mine. I just want to lead the way. I just want to show you. I don't have a lot to say. I just want to love you. Just want to